Psalm 127 and 128. We're taking these two together uh, tonight because the themes in them are very similar. So we're going to look at them uh, together. Uh, a while back I mentioned that uh, the uh, motto uh, of Calgary University, at least over the one of the arcs, is I to the hills will lift my eyes, written in the Gallic language as it looked toward uh, the Rocky Mountains. Um, Psalm 127 is uh, similarly famous for another city, and that is the city of Edinburgh, where you would think in the Gallic language, but in the, uh, in the Latin language, Nisi Dominus Frustra is the uh, um, Latin, without the Lord it is vain. That's the, uh, the city motto of Edinburgh. Would they choose it today? I don't know. I highly doubt it. But it was chosen in a time where Christianity uh, uh, pervaded in the culture. So, Nisi Dominus Frustra. Without the Lord it is vain. And a wonderful um, uh, motto to put over the city, a reminder uh, that unless the Lord builds the house, the labors labor in vain who build it. And the, this first psalm expresses in two parts uh, the belief that human effort is useless apart from God. And whether that is in uh, work or in family. In Psalm 128, really complements and reinforces these ideas and themes. Derek Kidner, in his commentary on the Psalms, says that these Psalms deal with the universal preoccupation of building, security, and raising a family. Building, security, and raising a family. These were preoccupations. Security was always a preoccupation in the days in which the Psalmist lived. Almost had them. They were always a preoccupation. Of course, family was a preoccupation as well. Uh, it was part of the mandate of God to Abraham that through him all the families of the earth would be blessed. So building, security, and raising a family. These were very strong preoccupations in the day in which the psalmist lived. And they are still, uh, uh, in many ways, preoccupations for us. So he says at the beginning, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. This is a verse that we often hear quoted we, when we're praying. We're reminded of, of trying to build our lives around something not of the Lord. And the frustration of that. It may succeed for a time, but it's the Lord that determines the value and the lastingness of our work. It's the same with ourselves. It's the Lord that determines these things. And uh, we see that principle, for example, in 1 Samuel chapter 7, 2 Samuel chapter 7, where David has a passion to build a house for God. I will build you a house. And, he, and uh, 
You remember Nathan the prophet says, go and do what's in your heart. But that night the Lord spoke to Nathan and he says, go and say to David, will you build me a house? I will build you a house. And when it's built around my specifications, when it's built around my principles and purposes, when you understand what I want to do, and David, it's good that you have this in your heart, but sincerity doesn't always cut it. There, he's dead. (laughs) Sorry about that, but he had to go. Uh, Sincerity doesn't always cut it. We know that, that it's not sincerity that uh, draws us close to God. It's truth. We worship God in truth. And so God was saying to David, I, I mean, they, they were in the, the uh, early days of the kingdom. And so God had to set down that principle right away. David, your heart and your plans are not going to be determinative of what's coming. It's my will, it's my revelation, and because of that, it's going to last. If you do things my way, it will last, it will be blessed. And so it was. The the throne of David would last forever. Not based on David's will or David's doing, because we see that when man started to get his dirty fingers in it, it crumbled. Judgment came time and time again. But when, when God was in it, when it was being built around God's will, it prospered. And you see that in the book of Chronicles where they, they started to rebuild and shape after the, after the exile around the word of God, God's specifications, and then God, it says, bless them. And so the same is true here. Unless... The Lord builds the house. Those who build it labor in vain. Jesus reminds us that apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And if this is the same for a house, whether it was the, 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 the dynasty of, of David or the temple or the church, uh, the the fact remains the same. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. We see that principle in the destruction of the temple ultimately in uh, in the 6th century B.C. when the Babylonians came in and destroyed it. The temple fell because it wasn't built around the glory of God and the will of God. There was idolatry in the land. There was many other gods, many other religions being worshipped there. And and that whole enterprise then came crashing down. We see it again in 70 AD where the builders, the stone that the builders rejected, the stone that came along, who was that stone? We should know by now it was Jesus was that stone. But the builders rejected that stone. In other words, the Lord was not in it. They threw the stone out. And in 70 AD, God said, this house will come down. Jesus himself said, your house has left you desolate. How how true that is today 
uh, whether it's our homes or whether it's the church, that unless God is in it, uh, it, it will not su- succeed. He goes on and he says, unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Remember over the last number of Psalms, Psalm 122 or Psalm 121 or Psalm 125, as the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds those who fear Him. All these things would be in vain. The walls would be in vain. The, The mountains would be in vain if God was not in it. Unless God was watching over the city, the, the watchmen stay awake in vain. And so that, that was a principle that they had to learn. They couldn't trust, no matter how thick the walls were. And if you watch that video, as I, 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 I suggested, um, on the fall of Jerusalem, the, 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 the bricks, the stones of that wall were huge. They were thick. They were very wide. And you would think nobody could penetrate those. But in time, that city came down. No matter what the human fortifications. And so it it would all be in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen watch in vain. The city was not magically defended. It was not uh, uh, simply... uh, going to last simply because they had mountains or walls around it. They ultimately had to trust in the Lord. And that was definitely true for Solomon. This is a song of Solomon, isn't it? Of Solomon. A song of ascent of Solomon. So the, the, uh, uh, the uh, broad understanding of this psalm, because it says of Solomon, that it was written by him. And that he is in his earlier, wiser days, testifying to this principle. But Solomon is a definite warning for people of all ages of what happens when when God is forgotten. We looked at that somewhat last week uh, as we looked at uh, Psalm 125, the scepter of wickedness coming into the land. And many churches, many denominations today beginning to embrace the spirit of the age. And what is happening to them? They are falling apart. They are coming under the judgment of God because they fear man more than they fear God. And it's a warning to us. Many of these denominations started off strong, started off theologically strong, and committed, but over time, uh, that began to disintegrate, and so it was for the for the house of Solomon. What a beginning, right? Solomon builds the temple, and the glory of God comes and fills the temple to such a degree that the priests have to get out; they can't minister anymore. the The presence of God is so powerful, and Solomon gives that great prayer. Things seem to be going very, very well. And then over time, one of his Egyptian wives wants him to build a, 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 a place to, for her to worship. And then this wife that he, he uh, has wants, she feels lonesome for her homeland. And she wants a little shrine or a temple for her gods where she can worship. So Solomon does that. Well, over time, Solomon says, okay, well, I'm not, I'm not, 
going to worship there. I'm still going to worship the Lord. She can go down. I'm sure you know she misses her home, misses her gods, and all the familiar furniture that goes along with that. So we'll put a little spot there for her, and another spot for another wife. And but over time, Solomon himself uh, takes an interest in these things, and he goes off and begins to worship there as well. And the whole security of the city ultimately. Uh, is undermined and comes crumbling down. So Solomon, uh, who built this house for God, was not able to sustain it because uh, it, it was maintained on principles other than uh, the principles that God expected of him. So the house fell into ruin. No matter how wise he was, no matter how rich he was, no matter how many chariots or whatever they had, Ultimately, the city uh, fell. Paul is saying the same in the, in the New Testament. The Galatians, they start off well. They start off very promising. He says, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Remember we looked at that when we went through uh, Galatians? The Spirit of God was there, the 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 work of the kingdom was going forward so wondrously. Paul says, look, you receive me as an angel, as, God, as Christ himself. You would have gouged out your eyes. Such, such was the love. Such was the glory. What's happened to you, he says? What happened to those days? Now there's backbiting. There's infighting. Why? Because you're moving forward and your, the, the, the foundations of your church are based upon works and not grace. And it will soon crumble. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. So we see God and the house, God and the city, God and then and work the vanity of not having God in the house, God in the city, and also God in our daily endeavors. It is vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives his beloved sleep. What are we to make of this? Well, broadly speaking, God is saying that there is a balance between work and trusting God. Again, we there's the danger of falling into uh, too much one or the other. We're not simply to leave off work and completely say, well, I'm, I'm trusting God for my daily bread. No. The Bible puts a high premium on work. If a man was not, will not work, let him not eat. The, the Proverbs speak a great deal about working, being diligent. Go to the ant, he says. Watch how they lay up food for the winter. Look how, they're, how industrious they are. The Bible puts a great deal of emphasis on work. And so we must be workers, but we must also work in faith, trusting that God is going to bless it. You see, it's important for us to work, but it's important for us to trust as well, to put God at the center of what we do. 
It is vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. There's that. There's the key word, anxious toil. The person is toiling. Maybe they're sacrificing church, sacrificing worship, sacrificing their families because they don't trust God. They're not resting in God's promises. Trusting in God does not make a believer lazy or inactive. Quite the contrary. It should make him more faithful, more diligent, and more hopeful that God is going to bless uh, his endeavors. Knowing that all these things are gifts from God. That God not only gives us the grace to work and get up in the morning, gives us the gift of the car to go to work, to do all these things, to serve our families, but we are to realize that they are gifts from God. But so is rest. And rest is a testimony. Rest is a testimony. That's why we make such an an important claim about the Lord's Day, about serving God in church, to guard that, to protect it. Not only for our own souls, but as a testimony to the world that we say, I don't live by bread alone. Or that I'm not defined by my job. But just as God has given me a job, He's also given me rest. He's also given me a day, His day. And what am I doing with that day? And so I honor both things, don't I? I honor the work that He has given me. Six days you shall work. On the seventh, hang on, that's holy. On that day you shall do no work. That's that's a, a, a principle that lasts throughout time. Man was not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was made for man. It's a gift of God. Why would God throw that out in the New Testament? Surely He would not. And so he gives his beloved sleep. The godly man, the man who fears the Lord, is able to say, these are the parameters that God has set. And I seek to honor those parameters. Six days you shall work. Now again, uh, we qualify that by saying, well, there are occasions where out of works of necessity, we are called to work on the Lord's day and so on. But broadly speaking, we are to live as those who realize that it's God that gives. It's God that takes away. He gives success and blessing. He infuses our work with His blessing. In in the way that he wants to bless, and not the way we think he should bless. Maybe with lots of money or a you know success here or there or the other. But the way he would bless us. Are we willing to do that? Are we willing to let him choose the way he would bless our lives, not the way we would expect them to be blessed? We have, we we don't start off with a predetermined view of what success should look like, but we leave it to the Lord. 
We work in faith that, okay, I'm not making all the money that I dreamed I would make, but there is joy in my work, there's purpose, there's fulfillment in my work, there's all of these things. And I'm able, in the, in the work that He has given me, to be in church on the Lord's Day, to be at home with my family. These are also, and people can look back and say, I'm glad that maybe I didn't get my way when it came to my job, my career, that God kind of pulled in my reins a little bit because it allowed me to do those other things in life that also carry God's blessing and God's purpose. So we work while trusting God, and we also rest while trusting Him. He gives His beloved sleep. Work is important in the Bible, but so is rest. The day of rest, the day of testimony, it's a day that we say to the world, I don't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And I choose to let God bless my work the way He sees fit. And I, I work out that balance. Unless the Lord builds the house, unless the Lord keeps the city, unless the Lord defines the parameters of my work and my rest, I work in vain. To work is to work in faith. To labor in faith. There's lots of many you know, successful people. Think of Bill Gates or Steve Jobs and all these people, and you ask, are they working in faith? Are they working to the glory of God? I mean, they, they built great things and things that we uh, uh, benefit by. Apple, Microsoft, all these things. But then in the full scheme of things, in the eternal things, isn't that what we're to be looking toward? Not looking at the things that are temporary, but the things that are eternal. Blessed are those who die in the Lord. Their works do follow them. So at the end of the day, whose work will God honor? How was it with Steve Jobs when he died? How will it be for Bill Gates when he dies? Or Elon Musk? Or any of these other great, powerful inventive, creative minds. Whatever is not of faith is sin. Whatever is not done to the glory of God will not last. That's why Jesus says, if you give a cup of water to one of these little ones in My name, He will by no means lose your what? Reward. But what does He say of the rich and the powerful? In this life, they have their reward. But we will keep our reward, though it be as small as a glass of water, we will never lose that reward. That's the difference, friends. That's what this psalm is calling us to. It's infusing God into the equation. Derek Kidner says again, the two halves of the psalm are neatly illustrated by the first and last paragraphs of Genesis 11. The Tower of Babel, 
Man is doing it on his own, by his own schemes. He's trying to get ahead. We will build a tower to heaven. Kidner says, where man builds for glory and security, you see, that, that, that's what they were doing. They were building for the glory of their name and for the security of the people around them. To achieve only a fiasco, yet God quietly gives to the obscure Terah, T-E-R-A-H, father of Abraham, a son whose blessings have proliferated ever since. What a difference. So you can think of the Tower of Babel, you could think of you could put into that equation the movers and shakers of today, the CEOs, the Mark Zuckerbergs or the the Bill Gateses and people who are doing things maybe for this life. But then there's the obscure man and woman of God who are working in faith day in, day out, going to work, coming home, praying humbly that their work is blessed by God. Lord, bless the work of my hands. Help me to get along. Help me to work to your glory. Help me to rest to your glory, Lord. Help me not to get so caught up with living that I I start to forget Sundays and forget to pray and to read before I go out, to pray that this day belongs to you, Lord. And the Lord looks at that person, that obscure person that the world might laugh at and mock, just as here in that chapter 11 of Genesis, the Tower of Babel, the great men of, of the world building, what does it come to? Nothing. Then we hear the word, the name Terah. He has a son called Abraham. And God comes and visits him and says, leave your home, leave your family and go to a land that I will show you. And he goes and he obeys in faith. And as Kidner says, a son whose blessings have proliferated multiplied, expanded ever since. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, after having said to the Corinthians about the resurrection, the the glory of the resurrection of Jesus, he says, therefore, know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. You see? That's the key. In the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord. This Psalm 127, just as Psalm we sang 112, it's all focused. It's not just any man or any woman or any child, but it's the one who fears the Lord that brings the Lord into the equation of their work or their home or whatever it is. That's how we build. We build in the Lord. We work in the Lord. And we leave the consequences with the Lord. Even when we are coming on to the end of our careers and we haven't seen all those things we wanted, yet by faith we say, I have committed it to the Lord. It is what it is. And I'm happy about that. I've been able to maintain those parameters in my life where my soul is kept safe. I've not let my soul be dragged into the muck and the mire of work alone 
Or as he says here, eating the bread of anxious toil. But I've guarded my heart in the fear of the Lord. And because I've committed my way to the Lord, He will make my righteousness shine forth as the noonday sun. Because I've chose to do it for Him, for His glory. And so Paul says, know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Isn't that important, friends? Isn't that so important why Paul uses that language again and again and again? In the Lord, in the Lord, in the Lord. Because it's not just marrying, it's not just working, it's not just doing these things, but it's doing them in the Lord, to the Lord's glory. That then frees us up. To sleep without anxiety, without worry, because you've committed it to the Lord. You've honored Him in your work, now you're going to honor Him in your rest. Hebrews 6 says, God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for His name in serving the saints. Notice there, that you have shown for His name. They may feel that all is vain. See, look, look, look at what is happening there in that epistle to the Hebrews. He's trying to encourage a de- discouraged people. A people that are saying it's all for nothing, it's all in vain. We, ever since we follow Jesus, we've got nothing but grief and trouble. And I'm just barking up the wrong tree. I'm running down a rabbit hole. It's just getting me nowhere. Now listen to what he says. He takes them in hand. God is not unjust to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for His name. Right? That was the temptation of the man in Psalm 73. God is good to Israel, but as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I I, I envied the prosperity of the wicked. I I started to envy what they were doing and how they were living and all the prosperity and their, their health and wealth. And I was just being sucked into that. And at the end of that psalm, he comes, what does he realize? It is good for me to draw near to God. Nevertheless, continually, O Lord, You are with me. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the portion of my life. God is the portion of my life and my strength forever. Friends, those are principles to build our lives around, to sink our foundation deep into and hold fast, because nothing will overthrow that edifice. That's what we saw last time. 125, those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion. It cannot be moved, but abides forever. See, there's the eternity of it. And so 128, he says, blessed is everyone who fears the Lord. That's the, that's the kicker, as we say. Who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed and it shall be well with you. How does that? How is that going to be ultimately defined? By you when you graduate from university and you put down how it's going to go in your life and so on? No. You leave it to the Lord. You say, I don't know how that's going to happen, but I'm just going to let him bless me in the way that he has chosen. 
So in that way, Paul said, he says, be steadfast, immovable in the work of the Lord. This doesn't mean that everything will be easy, but it will not be in vain. It will not be in vain. Your work in the Lord will not be in vain. So if you know this God, if you know this Lord, the One who who loves you, and who controls history and sees the sparrow, numbers the hairs on your head, you're able to agree with the psalmist here. So Jesus says, do not be anxious about anything. He says, but seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these other things will be added unto you. He goes on talking about family then in, in the last part of 127 and 120 uh, and the rest of 128. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is, uh, who, who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. And then he talks about in 128, your children shall be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. Again, let's, be, let's remind ourselves that it's not just a multitude of children. You know, any family with any big family, all that there, it's going to go well with them. That's not what he's saying. It's all in the covenant context. It's in the, the these psalms, as many commentators have pointed out, are wisdom psalms, and the wisdom psalms are akin to proverbs. And what is proverbs all about? But the fear of the Lord. That the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Calvin said, "A man can have a large family, and yet they can be a, a large batch of trouble if they are not." properly instructed in the things of the Lord. David had uh, uh, many sons himself. But there was much trouble in his household, wasn't there? Absalom and uh, Ahijah and all these other uh, 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 sons of David, including Solomon himself, He had many sons, but he also had much trouble. And so the context here is in the fear of the Lord. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Back downstairs, somebody wrote on the wall, I am a gift from the Lord, which was nice to see. I only noticed it this morning, but it's a good reminder. But these things are seen in terms of covenant blessings of God. They are the fruit of the, uh, the, the the fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. And now here's why that is. He shall be not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. In other words, the sons are able to support the father in old age. They're able to come in around 
And because of the blessings of the Lord in their lives, not only multiplying them, but also being spiritually instructing them in spiritual ways, they will be a reward to the Father in His old age. And he goes on in chapter one uh, in Psalm 128, your children will be like olive shoots around your table. The olive oil was basic to the Israelite economy, and it was used in everything from medicine to cooking. So it was a very apt picture of something that was essential. And so here the children are presented as olive shoots. Again, it's a picture of productivity. It's a, when you see something growing, when you see something shooting out like that. Something that's going to be so essential for so many areas of life, like medicine, like cooking, and, and many other things. You're glad to see that coming about. And the children, who were those who would be a promise for the future, in terms of their being instructed and carrying the faith forward, this would be an encouragement to the man who fears the Lord. And they were to be a strength to the nation. One person has said, yes, we bear and raise them, but then we shoot them out as arrows to the land in the places God designs. Notice there you have arrows and shoot. Olive shoot and shoot arrows. I don't know if it's going to be it's the same idea, but I doubt it. It is. But here this author is saying, we, yes, we bear and raise them, but then we shoot them out as arrows to the land in the places where God designs. This is why we find parents bringing their children to Jesus to bless them. It wasn't good enough then for the parents just to have children. But they had to bring them to the Lord. They had to say, Lord, here's my children. Children had to be instructed. Even Abraham's children. In the Exodus, it tells us that when, when your children come to you and ask, why are we doing these things? You shall tell them. You shall instruct them. We were slaves in Egypt, but God had mercy on us. Son, that's the kind of person I want you to be. I don't want you just to be, I don't want to just have a big family. Better to have a small family instructed in the Lord than many children. But for the nation of Israel, where the, the nation's health depended upon God's blessing upon children, it was such an important element. And so these children, it wasn't good enough just to multiply children, but they had to be instructed. How important that is for us. Another person says that the, the picture indicates their tender state and the need for nourishment if they were going to be the kind of olive shoots that were going to be a blessing to the man of God. Similarly, the wife, your wife shall be like a fruitful vine within your house. Similarly, the, the same picture is seen of the wife. And the man who fears the Lord, his wife will be known for vitality, for strength, for productivity. Again, if you 
take that forward to the wisdom literature in Proverbs 31, talking about the productivity and the industry and the faithfulness of the woman, the, 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 the wise woman, the woman who fears the Lord. All of these things broadly taken are the ways in which God blesses the, family, the work, the city, the family, and lastly, the nation. Verse 5 of 128, The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. See, there's an overflow. He goes from talking about the city, goes to talk about work, he talks about family, but then that family, the blessing upon that family, will overflow to the society around. That's why there is such a fight today for the family. What constitutes a family? How should government acknowledge families? What families ought God to acknowledge? Is it the families that we make up in our mind? How do we describe mother and father? Today, uh, we're getting rid of those terms on official forms. Mother, father, well that's too, that's, that's outdated. That's uh, 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 paternalistic. That's archaic. Caregiver one or caregiver two. Parent one or parent two. Talking about mother and father is no longer politically correct. You see, it's a fight for the very foundation of society. What kind of society we will have. And that's what we're seeing here in this psalm. That the blessings of the Christian home then overflow into the nation. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. That was true of the king. As it went with the king, so it went with the nation. As it goes with the family, so it goes with the nation. And as it goes with the family who fears the Lord, so the blessings overflow into the nation. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. So in, after speaking about at length about the things of the family, he ends by talking about the peace that belongs to the nation. We have a responsibility in our homes. The kinds of people we are will then determine the kind of society that we have. So friends, we're able to see, as we return to the first part of Psalm 127, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. How do you see your life? How do you see your work? And the parameters that God sets for work and rest. Are you willing to let God define how those blessings are going to flow? Or are you holding on? Are you, are you putting strings on your faith in God? Or are you letting God drive the agenda? That's what it means to let the Lord be the builder of your house. It's not just to say it. It's not just to quote it in a prayer or something like that. But it's to consciously say, whether it's work or whether it's family, whether it's my interactions with the nation as a whole, unless the Lord is determining the blessing and the parameters, we do so in vain. But 
if I am able to do all these things to His glory on His terms, what I'm called upon to do then is to at the end of the day sit back and let Him bless in the way that He has determined. And as we've seen throughout the Word of God, it's when God does it. If we let God do the blessing, if we try to wrest it from His hands, we know it will fail. We know that we'll come out poorer at the end. But if we let Him do the blessing and Him do the determining, our plans will succeed. Let's pray.